I asked you to turn to Mark chapter 5. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, there are certain stories that are told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, what we, we've come to a story today in Matthew, but Matthew, when Matthew tells the story, he only gives six verses, whereas Mark is going to give 20 verses, and there's a lot more detail. So there's going to be a few times where we'll, we'll actually look at what another gospel is saying, and then we'll pull in what, what Matthew is saying. Now there's a reason for that. In, when uh, the, the writers of the gospels were writing, each of them were writing for specific purposes. So when Matthew was writing, he's writing to a very Jewish crowd, and so he focuses in a great deal on what we would call the, the discourses or teachings of Jesus. There's five teachings, five discourses in Matthew. And so we, we went through the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which was chapters 5 through 7, and they were very lengthy. You don't get those in uh, the Gospel of Mark. But in Mark, there are certain stories, miracle stories, that you get a great deal more information that Matthew doesn't give so much information. So we're going to look today in Mark's Gospel, and then we will pull in from from uh, Matthew where we need to. In verse 1 of chapter 5 of Mark's gospel, and, and this is after the, the night that we, we, we considered last week, Jesus tells the disciples to get into the boat. They're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There's a great storm. We talked about that. And so it's, it's literally the next morning and it says, verse, chapter 5 verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. So what I wanted to do is just begin today and refresh our memory and show a map of what this looks like. At the top of Israel, there's this area called Galilee. And there's what's called the Sea of Galilee, which is a large freshwater lake. And so on the west side of the lake is all Jewish. On the east side, you'll see the word Gennesaret, and uh, you'll see where it says Decapolis down at the bottom. Decapolis just means 10 cities, and that'll be important for our study. But that side is all Gentile. They're pagan. They don't, they don't believe in the God of the Bible. And so uh, Jesus is traveling over to that side of the lake. They arrive, I pick it up in uh, verse 1, and it says, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs, and I've underlined the word tombs, with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. It's going to be an emphasis on the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs. Again, there's that emphasis. And in the mountains and gashing himself. However your Bible says it, you want to underline that, with stones. So there's a couple of things uh, that that are important for our study today. First of all, we're going to look at Jesus and what we would call the demonic. So Jesus is going to encounter somebody who is demonically uh, possessed. This is going to be very important for us today and uh, certainly I think uh, important for us as a congregation. And the reason being is that you and I live in a generation where people who profess to be Christians do not believe that there are actual demons. As a matter of fact, Gallup I'm sorry, not Gallup, but Barna uh, conducted a research study and uh, they found that four out of ten Christians strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being but a symbol of evil. An additional two out of ten, 20%, said they agree somewhat with that perspective. So about 60% of people who profess to be Christian uh, either do not believe in Satan or the, the things that you and I might call the demonic, the satanic realm, 
and and um, 60% don't. Where on the other hand, one quarter, 26% strongly or disagreed strongly. That is, 26% of Christians believe that yes, there really is a Satan. There really is uh, the demonic realm. You here at Calvary, we at Calvary, we're part of the 26% that believes that there really is a Satan, there really is demonic activity, and uh, that's something that I think is important to, to talk about. Uh, but most people who profess to be, be Christians believe that Satan is just simply a metaphor for evil. And uh, I would just suggest that not one time in any time where Jesus casts out a demon does he ever say, come out thou foul metaphor of evil. He never says that. And so, so he believes in the demonic, and we're going to talk about that today. I think it's also important, if you ever want to track any of this down, there's a great book for those of you who are readers, and it's called Biblical Demonology by Merrill Unger. He was a professor of seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and uh, he wrote a whole book on what the Bible talks about as far as demons. And there's actually an entire chapter in here called Demonology and Eschatology. What does the Bible say about demonic activity in the last days? And uh, again, there's a whole chapter there. It's very, very interesting. But let me give you one verse there on your outline. As Paul is writing to Timothy, one of the things that he says, he says, but the Spirit explicitly says, you take to the bank, that in later times, we would say last times, some will fall away from the faith. Now here's how they're going to fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Uh, deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So I believe, you know, Paul says this is going to take place in, in the last times. People are going to actually fall away from the faith. Uh, deceitful spirits, doctrines or teachings that would come from the demonic. I believe that the way that that takes place is that there is going to be this belief system in the last days which comes from, it's demonic in nature, that would hold that, that Satan's not real and uh, it's not really uh, something that you ever have to deal with. And as people buy into that, they're, they're going to find themselves buying into a whole different belief system. Uh, I, I uh, read the, the study. The study goes on to talk about how many who profess to be Christians no longer believe that the Holy Spirit is actually a, a living entity, but also a metaphor that Jesus didn't live a, sin, uh, a sinless life. So a number of things. Those are all what we would call the doctrines of demons. It's a very, very different gospel. And so um, but Jesus here, uh, if, if, if you don't believe in the demonic, and I believe that one of the reasons they, they want to convince us that they, don't, that, that they don't exist is because if you don't believe that these things exist, you never deal with them. And, uh, and so that becomes a deception all of its own. So um, by the way, uh, if this book talks about uh, biblical demonology, and if the best book I ever read about what to do about it is called The Invisible War by Chip Ingram. If you're a reader, you might want to get those books and read them. You'll find them very, very fascinating. So um, here we have in our story, we have Jesus is confronted by a guy. The Bible says he's demonic, uh, he's demonic uh, possessed. Now, one of the details, I didn't put it on your outline, but when Matthew tells the story, Matthew says there's two guys, whereas Mark and Luke, they just talk about the one guy. Mark and Luke, uh, Matthew says there's two guys, but Mark and Luke, they just tell you about the guy who's doing all the speaking. So there's going to be two, but one of them's going to be the spokesdemon, we might say. So it's funnier in my office, funnier in my office. But what I thought would be interesting for us today is just take a few moments as we've read through that, what would be the manifestations of demonic activity? What, what could we pull from this? 
Well, there on your outline, this story is told from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when Luke tells the story, he says it like this. There on your outline it says, when Jesus stopped stopped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes. Underline that, not worn clothes, or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Again, emphasis on the tombs. But uh, we underline not worn clothes because here in this man's life, demonic activity is manifested by what you and I would call inappropriate nudity. To run around everywhere naked is inappropriate. Hopefully you agree with that. In uh, chapter 5, verse 15, just notice something. Later on he's going to encounter Jesus, and we're going to notice a a change. It's going to say, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down clothed, and you want to underline that word clothed there in verse 15. But as our story begins, there's this inappropriate nudity. And uh, then another manifestation that we're going to see is, is going, going to be what we would call a fascination with death. A fascination with death. In verse 2, it just says that he got out of the boat immediately and a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And then again in verse 3, this man had his dwelling among the tombs. And so there is in this man, there's this fascination with death because three times it's going to tell us that that's where he likes to hang around. Growing up, uh, you know, year, years, years ago, and how many of you remember MTV when they played music? <laughs> Are they even on the air anymore? They are? Why do you know that? So, so just the, the number of videos that accentuated death and skulls and, and, and you know, everything seemed to be centered around that. Well, that is, not always, but that can be a manifestation of demonic activity. A few years ago, I shared this, and in our family, one of the traditions that we had is every Christmas, we would go buy the kids' pajamas so that they would wear those on, on Christmas morning. Well, back in 2013, as Christmas was approaching, Cheryl went shopping for pajamas, and she says you could go nowhere to find pajamas that didn't have skulls all over them. There's this fascination in our society with death. You know, the Bible teaches that Jesus says, I came to give life. God is all about life. It's a real concern when the society is fascinated with death. And so it could be, at times, a manifestation of demonic activity. Another thing that we see in this, very interesting, and I want you to write this down, number three is cutting. Cutting. Um, I put verse five on your outline. It says he was crying out and cutting himself. Crying out and cutting himself. Now, very interestingly, there's an article that says, why are so many girls cutting themselves? And uh, there is a new designation, uh, a new diagnosis in the DSM, Diagnostical Statistical Manual, for those of you who come from a psych background, and it's called NSSI, uh, which is Non-Suicidal Self-Injury, which basically deals with cutting. And it talks about the prevalence of this new thing in our society called cutting. How common is it, it says? Much more common than it used to be. Studies from the 1990s suggested rates of 3% or lower. But more recent studies suggest that as many as one in five girls aged 10 to 18 years of age are now cutting themselves with razor razor blades. So in 20 years, from less than 3% to 20% actively cutting themselves. 
Uh, for example, researchers at Yale University recently reported that 56%, 56% of the 10 to 14-year-old girls they interviewed reported engaging in NSSI at some point in their lifetime. So it's 56% have, have done this, but 36% in the past year, with 20% actively uh, on, on a regular basis cutting themselves. There is in our society a, a fascination with, with cutting. It's something that's taking, taking place. You and I are created in the image of God. There are certain things that we can learn about God because we are created in his image. Man doesn't naturally, as a society, just decide to start cutting. That, ha- that, that thought process has to come from some other source. And I would suggest to you that in this case, in this story, it is a manifestation of demonic activity. Is it always? I wouldn't say that, but I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out. Does that make sense? And so, so we see that. Uh, another thing that we see in uh, this, this individual is going to be meaningless violence, meaningless violence. In Matthew's gospel, it says it like this, uh, when it talks about these two, they were so violent that no, they were so violent that no one could pass by. And the idea is it's not war, it's, it's just attacking and, and for, for really no good reason. And uh, so something that we, we see happening in our society, and we've certainly seen certain drugs that seem to bring that about. Um, another thing that we see in this person's case or these people's case, in verse 4, and I put it there on your outline, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. So in this situation, uh, the demonic manifestation would be frequent incarceration. So this person is constantly being shackled uh, to be controlled because of what they're doing. And so we see that. Is it always? Well, I I wouldn't say yes, but I I wouldn't rule that out. And then we also see uh, in in this person, uh, there's going to be some unusual strength, unusual strength that can't be described as just physically healthy. Uh, There on your outline, verse four, I put it, it says, because he had been, the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles, shackles broken in pieces. So there's something operating in this man, in these men, that, that is beyond human strength. And we would say there's a supernatural entity. Now, our world looks at these, these things and, and tends to conclude that it's all psychological. And I believe that that's part of the, the, the lie that Satan would love us to believe. And I think there's two extremes that we have to avoid. One is that it's all psychological. It could be demonic. On the other hand, that it's all demonic. And uh, so somewhere in there is, is the balance. Well, verse 6, it says, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Now, in this case, this bowing down is not an expression of affection. Uh, he recognizes who Jesus is, he recognizes the authority, he falls down before him. And uh, verse 7 it says, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have to do with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you, by God, do not torment me. And here we see that these entities recognize exactly who Jesus is. 
son of the most high God. And, and yet that's not just recognizing who he is, is not what makes you saved or born again or right with God because they recognize. As a matter of fact, James would say it like this, and I put it on your outline, a verse we're all familiar with. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. They have the right information, but that's, the right information isn't what transforms, although you need that. So here he knows who Jesus is, he knows his power, and he has all the, the right knowledge. And, and uh, in verse, um, in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew says it, Matthew adds a little detail here. He says, and they cried out saying, have you come here to torment us before the time? Which is interesting because they know that there is a time coming. You and I live in a generation where people who profess to be Christians reject the idea that there really is a time coming. I would believe that's because people pay attention to the doctrines of demons or deceitful spirits. Uh, But they know that there is a time coming and uh, they're very concerned. Verse 8, it says, For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. A couple of things there. First of all, when it says Legion, a Roman legion was a a unit of 6,000 men. So it was was quite a a bunch. This guy has some issues. There's a lot going on inside of him. So there's, uh, you know, that's what they call Also interesting in verse 10 it says he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now some of your Bibles might not say country but country is really the best way of of, uh, saying that. And the reason being is that there are indications throughout the Bible that these entities seem to be tied to a certain geographical location. So they don't want to go outside of the country. Well, if Jesus were to send them outside of the country, where would he send them to? Well, it's at that point where when Luke tells the story, he adds a detail. So when Luke says that it says they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Uh, That is out of the country and into the abyss. Abyss in the original language, I put it there in your outline, is just abusos. And it just means bottomless, bottomless. it would be what you and I would refer to as the bottomless pit. Now the reason that's so important is that they are coming before Jesus and they are begging, do not punish us, do not punish us before the time. They recognize that there is a time coming. They really believe it. Not only that, they realize, do not punish us before the time, they realize that that is their ultimate that is their ultimate end. They will wind up there at a certain point. And so they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? And they're begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss, the abusos, the bottomless. Now why are they begging Jesus not to send them there? Well, first of all, Jesus has the authority to send them there if he chooses to. But they know uh, what the abyss is really like and they do not want to wind up there. You and I live in a generation 
where people who profess to believe in Jesus no longer believe that there's coming a time and that there is a place. And again, I would say that's because Paul would say many would fall away from the faith and the reason they fall away is they begin to listen to the doctrines of demons and the deceitful spirits. Does that make sense? Now verse 11 it goes on and it says uh, now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain and the demons implored him saying send us into the swine that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. I have underlined Jesus gave them permission. And coming out and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now it's interesting, uh, we find that, that these demonic spirits, they do not want to wind up in the abyss, because they know what that existence is like, and they do not want to go there. We also find that they don't want to be separated from a body. So they begged Jesus to let them go into a a herd of pigs. Now that tells us something. It's just a conversation for another day. You're going to hear that angels are, are, or that demons are nothing more than fallen angels. They're very, very different. Again, it's a conversation for another day. But angels never seek embodiment. They never seek a host. Whereas demons always seek a host. They're very, very different in origin and nature. And that's a conversation for another day. So you notice there that, that Jesus gives permission in verse 13 for them to enter into the pigs. This is the only time in the Bible where an, an evil spirit, a demon, unclean spirit, however your Bible would say it, is ever given permission to enter into an animal. And apparently for this to happen, it requires special permission. They can't do this without special permission. In the Old Testament, if you want to track this down a little bit, I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, as it deals with this in the Old Testament, talks about certain things, and God says, don't participate in these things. And the reason that God says, don't participate in these things, is that when you and I participate in those things, it appears to open a door uh, allowing access for these things to come in. And it's a, it's a very interesting study. I would encourage you to read that. That's Deuteronomy chapter 18. But apparently the, as far as animals, they can't enter into the animals without special permission, but you and I tend to do things that give them permission. So then the question is, why does Jesus allow them to go into the pigs? Well, there, there, there's two reasons. Um, the first reason is to uh, prove or show that this is not a psychiatric episode. Psychiatric or psychological problems uh, do not jump out of one person and into another person or into uh, a group of animals. Does that make sense? So it's to really drive home the point that this is, this is demonic in nature so we don't miss that. Uh, the other thing I think is important, uh, without going too far, and I usually get emails on this, but, but one of the things that we find is that that in God's economy, God holds his highest creation is, is mankind. We were created in, in the image of God. And so you and I live in a world that tends to elevate the animal. 
And here Jesus is conveying that one man or two men who need to be delivered by him are much more important than even 2,000 swine, 2,000 pigs is the, is the idea. So uh, for instance there in your Bible, on your outline it says, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. So we love animals, we care for animals, but we don't elevate animals is, is the idea. So last time I said something like that I got emails. So tomorrow's going to be an interesting day. Verse 14, well the herdsmen ran away and, respond, and reported it in the city in their country. And the people came out to see what it was that happened. And came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, and the very man who had the legion, and, and they had become frightened. So those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. So they'd seen what took place with the swine. So the herdsmen who see this, they know these guys. They, they've certainly seen them running around. Uh, maybe they've been attacked by them. They certainly know who they are. So when Jesus sends the, the demons into the swine, they run back, they tell everyone. So in, in the first part of this, what we did was we looked at what Satan does to somebody, what, what he does to a man when he can get, get in there. And there's this driving this person, there's this fascination with death, living in, among the tombs, there's uh, inappropriate nakedness, there's change, there's incarceration. And, um, and so we, we saw that, but I, I think it's equally important to look at what happens when somebody is changed by Jesus. What does that look like? Well, here's the picture of what that looks like. Um, verse 15 says, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down. Now I want you to underline sitting down. And when Luke tells the story, Luke says it like this, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, there on your, your outline. When it says sitting down at the feet of Jesus, that, that's important for us because in that day when a rabbi would go and teach, the way that he would teach is he would sit down his disciples would sit at his feet and he would teach. And then the other crowd would stand up behind and, and they would listen in. The fact that this man is sitting down at Jesus' feet as a disciple would be uh, it implies, and you, I want you to write this down, the first thing we're going to notice is the change, when Jesus changes somebody, there's a desire to be close to the Lord, hearing his word. And we see that. Um, you and I live in a generation where the emphasis is on somebody praying a prayer. But when somebody's been changed, they've been changed by Jesus, one of the manifestations is there's a desire there that wasn't there before to be close to him and to, to be hearing his word. It, it's a manifestation of being changed by Jesus. Uh, another thing that we notice is that there's a renewed sense of modesty. Verse 15, we read it, it says, they came to Jesus, observed the man who'd been demon-possessed, sitting down clothed. And, uh, and so there's this renewed sense of, of modesty. And what's also interesting in this is that nobody had to teach him. You, you just get the sense that you know, he comes running up to Jesus, he's possessed, he's, he's naked, and uh, Jesus casts out the demon, and uh, all of a sudden he's like, why? Well, I, I feel a draft. And, and he, so... So he's clothed. I don't know what you do with that, but 
Another thing that we're going to see, which is going to be very different than his previous existence, is that he now has a clear perspective. Write that down. Verse 15, again, it says, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, in his right mind. So from running nakedly, screaming, living among the tombs, to now sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind, clothed. So there, there's a very, very different experience. In our world, when we see these manifestations, our response tend to be that this person needs to be reformed. They need therapy. They need counseling. Um, but, but it could be that they need regeneration. There, there needs to be something. They need to have that encounter with Jesus. Jesus needs to, to, to change them. Well, verse 17, it says, and this is the, the people, the crowd, uh, the, the surrounding area, they began to implore him to leave their region. So we, we notice that there in the area where this man is, they were used to the screaming. They were used to the tombs and they were used to the attacking. But seeing this man sitting in his right mind, clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, this freaks them out. So they respond by saying, we, we, you know, we want you gone. You know? uh, others suggest that the reason they want Jesus gone is because they care more about the 2,000 swine and what that's going to do to their economic picture than uh, what it is that Jesus has done for this man. So that's certainly a possibility. Verse 18, he says, now as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. And he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And I just want to emphasize what the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, and I want you to underline Decapolis, we'll come back to that, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And uh, first thing I just want to say is Jesus says, go say what the Lord has done for you. And he goes and tells everybody what Jesus has done. And when we say Lord, that's, we're referring to God. And so he knows exactly who, who he is. He recognizes that. One of the things that, that we notice when somebody's been changed by God, and I want you to go ahead and write this down, they receive a, a mission from God. And, and the best way to say that is there's a purpose. There's, there's a, a sense of I'm supposed to be here. There, God has work for me to do. There's something that he wants to accomplish in me and through me. And uh, there in your outline he says, go home. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And what I love for this man, Jesus says, all I want you to do is just go back to where you're from, go around and tell everybody, just tell your story what God has done for you. Jesus doesn't say, you know, you need to go to seminary, you need to go to Bible college. For, for this man, it's just go tell your story. He believes, uh, Jesus believes that's going to be enough and God's going to use that, telling the story. Well, another interesting part of, of uh, this passage. Have you found it at least interesting so far? Good. I, in this chapter, there's actually three prayers. And uh, the first prayer is the prayer of the demons. They come to Jesus, and in verse 12, we saw it. They begin to implore him. Now, they, they're coming to Jesus. They know who he is. And in verse 12, as we would say they pray, the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. 
So the demons make a request of Jesus and Jesus says, okay. And then the man is delivered and then the townspeople come out and in verse 17, we would say they pray also. It says they began to implore him to leave their region. Okay, you don't want me here? I'll leave. So Jesus goes. Um, But to the believing man who's now been changed by Jesus, notice this, verse 18, as he was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Verse 19, but he did not let him, and he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So for the one who's been changed by Jesus, he prays, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, I want you to go home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And so verse 20, it says, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. When I read that, it tells me that there is another manifestation, indication that somebody has been changed by Jesus, and it's this. Write this down. There is a willingness to live in obedience to His Word over personal desires. Over personal desires. So He went. I want to put the map up again real quick, if I can. So Jesus says, I want you to go to your people. So he goes to this area called Decapolis. Now again, Decapolis just means ten ten towns, ten cities. So he goes there. You and I are in Mark chapter 5. This man goes and they've come to Jesus and they've said, please leave, leave our area. But this man goes and he begins to share what God has done in his life. And uh, Two chapters later, in Mark chapter 7, don't turn to it, I've put it on your outline, the next time Jesus shows up, notice what happens. Again, Jesus came through uh, the midst of the region of Decapolis, underline that, to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on them. And he took him aside from the multitude, and you can read what took place after that. My point is, one man chose to be obedient to what Jesus said, his word, even over his personal desires. And as he goes, and he begins to share his story. Two chapters later, when Jesus comes back, now they're bringing out to Jesus the ones that they need to have Jesus change also. All because one chose to stay in a situation that he didn't want to be in, but chose to be obedient to what God said, And God used that to transform a whole region. Does that make sense? So you never want to underestimate the power of telling your story and how God can use that. As we wrap up today, I wanted to just say very quickly, we we see the manifestations. Jesus believed in the demonic. Uh, He deals with that. It's not something that he glosses over. And we see here some of the manifestations. But we also see the manifestations of what it looks like when Jesus has changed someone. And so I want to ask you today, the manifestations that we see when somebody has been changed by Jesus, would you say that has been your experience?
when, when you look at your life, is, is there that desire like this man had from, we'd say, running wildly to then sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word? Is, is that a passion? Did that take place? Uh, is, is there a, an a, appropriate modesty? Is there an appropriate um, just a, a w- way of living, we might say? And uh, we don't dictate that. But we just noticed that, that this man, there was a change in, in his lifestyle. There, there was a, a mission, a sense of God saying, here's what you're to do. Here's how you're to live this out. A sense of purpose. When you were changed by Jesus, was there a sense of purpose that, that came with that? Because that's a manifestation of what it likes to be changed by him. Is there in your life, is there a desire or determination to do what he says even when it's against your own desires? That's a manifestation of what it looks like to be changed by Jesus. On the other hand, in later times, many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. I would want to make sure that every person who calls Calvary their church home has come to the place where they really have been changed. Now, the Bible, Jesus will say it like this. He'll say, um, he'll use the term born again. You must be born again. And it's like there was a time when you were in your mother's womb and you were born. There was one existence and then you came out and there's an entirely different existence. It's the same thing spiritually. You're in one existence and then at a certain point uh, you're born again. You come alive spiritually. When you come alive spiritually everything changes. It's 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 a different experience, a different existence. Uh, Another way that Jesus says it, he'll say, unless you are converted and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Conversion is an interesting word. What that means is if you have a room at your house, and let's say that room is a bedroom, and you want to turn it into an office. You go in there and you convert it into something else. So that it's still there, but it's been converted. Its purpose, its use, everything about it is different. You walk in, it's still there, but it's different. So in your coming to him, has there been that conversion experience to where we were one way prior, but then we were converted? It's still us, but our purpose, our usefulness, everything about us is very different. And if the answer to that is yes, then that's awesome. But if the answer to that is no or not really, we have to ask, what Jesus is it that we embraced if there hasn't been that change? Because what we see in passage after passage is there's always a change. There's a manifestation of what it looks like to be changed by him. So here, here is the gospel in a nutshell. God created man in his own image. He created man because he wanted to have that relationship just like you create children because you're created in the image of God, you want to have a relationship with your your kids. It's your desire. And so same thing, you get that from being created in the image of God. So God creates man, but man sins, violates God's principles and and, uh, separates himself from God. 
God looks down and says, and there's, a, there's a payment for that. But God looks at you and I and he says, but I can't bear for you to make that payment. Because like the demons, as they talked about, it's in a place they don't want to go. And, and they know what it means. And God looks at you and I as his highest creation. He says, I don't want that for you. So God said, I will come to the earth as a man and I'll live a perfect life. And on that day, I will step into your place because I love you so much, I'm going to take the payment that you would have had to pay. And because I've paid that price, I'm able to give you the free gift of salvation, the free gift of eternity, the free gift of his, his spirit, the free gift of a relationship with him now and for all eternity. That's the God that you embrace. So my question is, have you invited that Jesus in? And here's how you'll know that you have. There's going to be a change. There's going to be a hunger for the things of God. There's going to be a desire for change. There's going to be a desire to be who it is that God wants us to be. We don't always get it right, but the desire to be who he wants us to be is always there. And when we blow it, we come running right back. So as I pray today, I want to make sure that you know that you know that you know that the Jesus that you're following is the Jesus of the Bible not a Jesus that we've made up. That Jesus can't save us. And so with that, I'm going to pray. And uh, if that's you, then you can invite him in today. And I'm going to ask you to do two things. First of all, let us know by marking that on your connection card, just so we can know that you've made a decision so we can pray for you. Second of all, after the service today, there's going to be some prayer partners standing in the front. Solidify that decision. Uh, after we after we conclude, just make your way to the front and pray with one of the prayer counselors, uh, prayer partners, and let them know that that you've made that decision today. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, my prayer, our prayer, is that we don't want to live in a deception, embracing a Christianity that is not something that you have laid out, but something that we have created by listening to a source that did not come from you. So we look to you today and we just say, Jesus, I want you, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is God, Jesus who paid the price for my sins, Jesus who invites me into this relationship. And so today I trust you with my eternity. I trust you with my life. And I pray that as I invite you to step in, that I would experience that change that we see in this passage today. And your word says that you stand at the door and knock, and if we open the door, you come in and you never leave. So we want that. So we invite you in today. If that's you today, he's never going to leave, and you're going to notice that there's going to be a change that you did not manufacture. Father, for all of us here today, I pray that you give us a safe 4th of July weekend. Uh, I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.